Good morning, fish keepers. Cam here from the fishroom.co.nz. I hope we're all well. I hope we're all happy. It is the first Friday of December. No, last week was the first Friday of December. Second Friday of December. We've got Friday. We've done doing coffee. Let's make it happen. It's not bad. I'm trying a new coffee. I'm okay with that one. I can accept that one. Right. We have got ourselves a guest today, so we'll bring up our lovely friend, John. Good morning, John. Hey, how's it going? Good, thank you. And we have our guest, David Sanchez. How are you doing? Hey, guys. How you doing? <laughs> Very good, thank you. So David is a uh, hobbyist just like all of us. He is a tetra breeder or a fish breeder. Um, so I guess we'll start this this whole thing with can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into fish keeping oh my goodness um i've been keeping fish since i was eight years old i'm 53 years old it's hard to believe it's been that long and it's kind of cool because i've seen so many changes in the hobby and the tech in the technology especially it's amazing how things have changed before it was difficult to get the different things now you can order it on amazon so it's it's mm. nice to see how the hobbies change. It's, it's 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 really cool. So for for me, it started with a fish bowl, of course. Believe it or not, I knew nothing about fish, and then quickly I read books and I learned, hey, this is really fun. And sort of learning all about fish and reading books. And one of the things that really inspired me um were some of the books I I, I read that were written by the a lot of authors in. Germany in particular, they were very meticulous. They were almost like scientists. And then I started uh, keeping cardinal tetras and stuff like that. And back then it was, you know, really difficult to get these fish and they were touchy and I had to collect rainwater. And I was just fascinated by how beautiful and the life cycle that a lot of these fish have in the Amazon is fascinating. Like cardinal tetras are actually annual fish. They'll, they'll only live a year. And that's it. So that's that's really blows your mind. But in an aquarium, they they'll they'll live seven or eight years. I've, I've heard some mm -hmm. that'll live, ten, and they get like three or four times the size of a wild part of the place. Amazing. Cool. Yeah, it, I only found out recently that cardinals were seasonal fish. Um, yes, and it changed the way I thought about them completely because you know the question was raised that are we plundering the lives, you know. Um, colonies out there for the sake of our hobby but when you think about it we're prolonging their life if it's done sustainably and I think it's impossible not to because mm -hmm. most of them die off anyway so, yeah 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 it really made me it's food for thought that was a big thing for me too um to, to, to the point that you, the first question that you asked me on actually one of the things that really got me into this when, when I was in high school um I went to the state science fair and the paper I wrote was on spawning cardinal tetras and, and and the thesis i had was i wanted to sustainably breed them in captivity so that we wouldn't be you know stock because i feel like you i've been on that side of the wholesale and i'm going to be honest with you i'm not a big fan of it i've seen just even when we even if it's sustainable i've seen the thousands of fish that die at the wholesalers and in transport mm -hmm. and all these things but i i much prefer sustainable people fish. And, and that's what we see in europe in particular uh germany the czech republic 
um, a lot of those states right close to there, they're breeding fish and it's cold up there, you know, but actually we, we're, we're buying fish from them here in Florida because of the quality that they have. So the Tanqueray's Cardinals and stuff like that, they're coming in the United States and we're getting them from the Czech Republic because they're Tanqueray. So I'm, I'm really hoping that that's the, you know, that's what happens everywhere, that we're not going to be going to South America. Yes, it's sustainable. Yes, it's true. And I've read the papers and, and they're correct. But there's still that factor of the transportation and all the issues yeah. going there to diseases. And it's, you know, if you've been on that side and seen the, the, the death rates, it's horrific. And I hate to see that. And it breaks my heart. And, and yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a massive fan of as long as it's sustainable, I'm cool with it. But equally, mm -hmm. like, it might be sustainable, but there's a large mortality rate and ridiculously high stress rate on the fish and that kind of stuff. So then you question, yeah. is that considered sustainable if you're getting so many issues and so much death in that process? So it's like a double-edged sword for me. Yeah, yeah. Now, what I'm seeing here in Florida is a really cool thing. I've been in the hobby for so long and I've been on the professional side too. Years ago, we started importing fish from the Czech Republic before it was common, and we were reselling it to wholesalers here in the United States. Mm -hmm. And we we just, you know, it just made more sense to get apistos and stuff like that from there. And what I'm seeing now is the wild fish and the tank bread fish are right about the same cost. So that's a good thing. So I'm so I'm hoping that, you know, and then when you look at it, you know, compare that you're, you're, you're gonna get a hundred wild fish and maybe half of them survive and then mm -hmm. if you get 100 tank red fish well goodness now you're looking at 80 percent or more so I'm, so I'm hoping that that is what we see going forward that's certainly what we see in europe but here in, in the united states yet you know the fish are so cheap coming from south america and everything so i would like to see that change i, I really mm -hmm. would i think don't like that um I think have you fire away john um, the, the the topic of low cost fish and then that low value on a fish is something that Cam has brought up in lots of our live streams in the past. Where mm -hmm. you know, when, when somebody spends a lot of money on a dog or a fancy cat or something, they they see the value in that, so they want to do everything they can to give that the best life it can have. But when fish, are, you know, a five dollar fish or or something like that comes into your care. Um, it just doesn't hold the same value with a lot of people and I think that is, is where their life becomes expendable uh, and replaceable far too easily so yeah okay. I definitely agree with you on that and you know, the low price is always a problem mm. I remember getting Cardinals as a kid at the pet stores in New York City 12 for a dollar I mean oh, wow. people, people would use them as Peters, that's horrible. I mean, I, I remember hearing that. So, so, so I'm so glad that now, like, like to your to your point, they're five and six dollars a piece, and you got to get six or ten of them. So now there's an investment, a little bit of an investment there, and hopefully, like you know, I, I really like that that people hopefully, you know, investing more are going to give them that care and that time and everything. Versus, it's true, people put a value, a monetary value on things, and it's sad. So hopefully, we we could just raise, you know raise that awareness so for, no, definitely. We're, we're a new zealand base and you're saying five or six dollars um a piece for a cardinal there'll be a lot of people going oh man that's so cheap because we're about 11 or 12 dollars a fish for a cardinal tetra 
But I think by the time you work out the exchange rate, that would probably be pretty close to be the equivalent of about the same price that we pay for a fish, give give or take a little bit. So right. um, we, we're kind of around about the same point when it comes to yeah, that, yeah. just different, different currency, obviously. Yeah. Um, have you or do you notice any difference in coloration or different morphs between wild caught fish and captive produced fish in over there? Yeah, there's a big difference for sure. Like the Florida fish farms here are notorious for just breeding fish in ponds, and there's not mm -hmm. a lot of control. There's not. There's just kind of a haphazard thing. And then over the years, what you'll see is absolutely degradation as far as the coloration. Um, these these fish tend to get sick faster because of the way they're raised. They're not resistant. Now, the opposite is true of the fish raised like in Germany and the Czech Republic. These fish and the fish I raised right here, after the third or fourth generation, I start to see, man, they're stronger. They're more resistant. Now, carbon tetra, you know, they'll lay eggs in at 6.5, whereas before, when I first had them wild, if the pH wasn't in the fours, forget it, you know? Mm. So it, it's amazing how fish evolve but to your point yeah it's really important um that you control things so there's you got to be a little bit of a scientist here you know not too much of get too involved but you really do want to control your lines like myself here i have two lines of cardinals the lines from colombia are different from the lines from brazil the ones from colombia have more red in them and the reason for that is the red on them goes only to, I'm sorry, not the red, the, the turquoise on them goes to the adipus fin. As you know, all Tetris have the adipus fin on their back. So because of that, their appearance is they have more red. So I have the, the ones from Brazil are the ones that are most common. Wow. Oh, I didn't so know that. that was, yeah, well, I was um, looking up uh, Rummy Nose Tetris the other day, and I noticed there's three or four slightly different variants of them. Yeah, uh, we seem to only get one, but even that kind of opened my eyes a little. Okay, cool. So there's a couple of different variants of the of the one fish, and it's obviously the same with the canals. So it's probably the same with many different many different species of fish. There's slight variations from catch points and stuff like that that make them a totally different animal. So yeah amazing it yeah. really is yeah uh so back back to the evolution you just sort of touched on how you know third or fourth generations of breeding in a higher uh, sorry yeah a higher ph than the wild caught ones i was always under the kind of impression that evolution has taken millions of years to develop fish or anything to where it's at and two or three generations wouldn't be enough to uh alter the requirements or alter the fish per se what you've obviously discovered or, or worked out is that it's a little bit longer in, in a tank raised environment and and that completely changes it well let me caveat that let me caveat that i said eggs would be laid not necessarily hatch okay. so okay. you know even at the third and fourth generation we're still seeing um i have to use one of the things i have to use is phosphoric acid um, mm -hmm. This is very useful stuff. Um, the pH has got, especially when you're using 
when I was a kid, I was blessed. I had rain water and I had a well and my well, the water came out of my well at a pH of 5.5 and zero hardness. So naturally fish from South America were just easy for you. It just made sense for me to start with those fish. Now I I have to work hard at it, but no, sir, even now, um, I'm at the fourth generation now from the wild now, and, and I still got to go to 4.5, but they'll lay eggs now, I'm surprised, at 6.5. Like they'll, mm. you know, in the tank, the community tanks, they're laying eggs, whereas before it wasn't until those conditions were very exact. So there, I'll, I'll, I'll probably see that change as the years go on, but just the fact that I'm even seeing them actively laying eggs at 6.5 is fascinating. Mm. Mm, very much so. But I don't think the egg the eggs have evolved to that point because the eggs obviously have evolved in a very low pH, you know, zero hardness, and and, and that is, is is a different environment for, for sure than when you mm. have that hard water. So what was that um the bottle of acid that you had was because it's so so uh, this is for some reason for my head? Yes, this is one of the tricks of the trade that I've learned from the Breeders in the Czech Republic. I'm not going to take credit for this. Okay. Now, now here's what I'm going to say. The best way, the best way is to use Canadian sphagnum peat moss. But it's it's not sustainable. Uh, they're raiding the peat bogs and everything. Yeah, I have a bag of it. Okay. <laughs> but that's the best thing. But it takes two weeks. You have to get patient. So when I was a kid, I used one of those old box filters and I put the peat in there with the cotton on top, you know, the kind of filter mm-hmm. I'm talking about. And you put mm-hmm. it in a tank and two weeks later, the pH would be down to 4.5 or 5.5, somewhere in that range. It takes time. But this stuff here is amazing. Now, you got to be careful with this stuff, though. You got to have the tools to test your water. Um, but this stuff is stable. Yeah, this stuff is pretty good. But make sure that you get food grade stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and they use this to make like uh, wine and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. It's a, a so, great way to for people. A lot this of is, people uh, here, um... here. I don't know if you can see it. You're good. It's food, it's 10%. It's a phosphoric acid. Yes. Not sulfuric. Phosphoric acid. Sulfuric acid didn't. Really, sulfuric acid doesn't seem quite right. What's going on today? These guys, there are some discus guys, and they use that stuff, the muriatic acid. Um, I've used it before years ago. I don't like it. It's not. It like the pH will change every day. You go back and test it. The pH will change. This, it stays the same every day. Cool. It's pretty. I, I'm not saying a month from that it'll be the same, but if you're setting up a pair of cardinals to lay eggs in a few days' time, this is this is this is fine. Cool. Have you um, a lot of people that I've spoke to use uh, botanicals like pods and leaves to to reduce the pH? Um, yeah. Obviously, that's not a permanent thing because it only reduces it and then it, as that fades it'll slowly climb back up but um is that something that is effective short term 100 yeah. best way to do it that's the best way to do it folks i'm not going to lie that is the best way to do it but there are problems with that like the reason i use the phosphoric acid 
it keeps things clean. You know, it's mm -hmm. not that it's going to be a sterile environment. That's never going to happen. But when you're feeding little tiny fry and you're trying to tend from, if you see the fry, I mean, I, I'm 53. I can't see these things after half my son. Hey, I got <laughs> back, back, mm -hmm. you know, if I see two or three of them, I know I got a couple hundred. You know, if I see 10, I've got hundreds of them, you know, they're so tiny. So you you, you want to be careful having that stuff because it makes it more difficult now when you're raising the fry to keep things clean. Cleanliness and hygiene are very, very important. So I found that the peat moss is good because you can contain it in bags. So mm -hmm. that's pretty good stuff. Um, and the phosphoric acid, obviously, just the water is, is crystal clear the whole time and you can go in there and, and get stuff out. So cleanliness and hygiene is going to be very important because those little tiny fry are very touchy the mm -hmm. first couple of weeks there. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had a, a question from the floor. Mm -hmm. Can you can you see that on your screen? Oh, yes, I sure can. Um, right, cool. So yeah, what's with with tetra species, the smaller variety like ember, reed, and neons, is it correct they like to be in a smaller, somewhat nano tank, or is it the opposite? They prefer a large tank. Um, those are good questions. So those two in particular, I happen to know about them. I don't know about all of them. There's so many tetra species out there, so I couldn't answer all of them. Um, but those two in particular, so the the uh, ember tetras, they are probably pretty good. And, and forgive me. Because here in America, we use the only country that uses the gallon size, right? Um, so probably a 20-gallon tank for those fish is pretty good. Now, to breed those fish, you breed them very differently, okay? The neon tetras, you breed them as a pair. You breed them as a pair, and you want to breed them in a 5-gallon or a 2-gallon tank. Um, the ember tetras, you want to breed them in a 20-gallon tank. And let me grab something. For both of those fish, you got to have something like this because they're going to eat their eggs. Mm -hmm. Neon tetras especially are going to eat them as soon as they drop the eggs. So you have to have something to protect the eggs. So they're going to eat them immediately. Now, the ember tetras is a cool fish because those guys – you can put them in a 20 gallon tank and let me show you a tank here real real quick so if you were to put a bunch of ember tetras in something that looked like this kind of and if you could see that guys mm -hmm. yeah now it's not a pretty tank but there's floating there's a lot you have to have a lot of floating plants on the top and then put a lot of java moss and they actually will not eat their eggs. So you could just put a colony of ember tetras by themselves in a 20-gallon tank. And this is probably the one of the easier fish you could reproduce at home. You put a bunch of ember tetras in a 20-gallon tank with a bunch of floating plants, as you saw. And there's different kinds. It doesn't matter which kind. And then java moss, lots of it. And they won't eat their eggs and their fry. And you'll get a colony pretty fast. Cool. But the key is you got to feed them live food, though, every day, like live mm -hmm. brine shrimp and newly hatched stuff. Cool. 
Is there any um, specific water parameters that the embers tetra needs, or uh, the embers are pretty easy now? Here's the thing: there's now there's tank raised embers, and there's tank raised neon tetras too. So here in Florida, the fish farmers in Florida have been breeding the neon tetras for years now, and you could actually breed neon tetras in a pH of Florida water seven point six and TDS of over two hundred, which I bred neon tetras when I was 15, and the pH was 5.5, and the hardness was zero, and they wouldn't do it in any other any other way. And the neons are particularly about temperature too. The wild ones, they have to spawn in cool water. The neons that are Florida tank rays will spawn in 80 degree Fahrenheit water and above even. So evolution of fish is something that I'm fascinated by now because. I started this hobby so long ago that I remember when these fish were so touchy and to see them now just blows me away. Um, so for the New Zealand watchers and listeners, uh, <coughs> gallons per litres is roughly four times. So 20 gallon would roughly be 80 litres, give or take. Um, mm -hmm. I couldn't tell you what the conversion on the ferromagingle to Celsius is off the top of my head. I'm sorry, but yeah, just the gallons per uh, litre um, is roughly four times. Yeah, um, I have actually a. I actually had a conversion here nice. for me. So the ember tetras, um, they'll spawn anywhere from about seventy-eight degrees Fahrenheit, which is twenty-five degrees Celsius, cool. um, to about eighty-one, which is about twenty-seven degrees Celsius, and they can go a little bit more or less than that. But that's a perfect range there. Now, I don't know if you folks have access to tank rays, neon tetras. I believe um, most of them are, yeah. Most of them are, then then you shouldn't have a problem with those. Those, they're so widely tank bred now, I'm amazed. Like the ones in Florida, pH of 7.6, 7. I, I was blown away. Cool. So how many different species of tetras have you successfully hatched and raised in your time? Oh my goodness, so many, I can't even count it, but it's probably over 30 or 20 or 30 at least. Um, back when I was uh, 14 years old, I had I lived in Florida, so I had access to go down to the, in Miami, there's a lot of wholesalers who import from Brazil and Peru. So mm. I made friends very fast with some folks down there and I had access to go down there and pick a lot of fish. So I was able to get a lot of pencil fish and, and Cardinals and uh, um, the splashing tetras. Uh, so many different, so many different kinds. So, cool. It's fun. <clears throat> so, I guess there's a little bit of a double-edged sword for me in a positive way. Um, mm -hmm. One of the reasons I was really, really excited about getting you on is I wanted people who have considered. Tetras to be like impossible or really hard to breed to have the opportunity to talk to someone who has has done that and to open up the world of actually these are these are possible they're not like they were oh, yeah. this is a 100 possible achievement the other thing is i'm getting into breeding tetras myself for my own shop so like i'm trying to pick awesome. your brain as much as i possibly can yeah of course of course conversation flows really yeah well. <laughs> So, well, I I love that. I feel like the point and the goal here is that everybody can spawn in themselves. 
Yeah. So that we're not going to Brazil and Peru and, and stripping them. And, and these fish take a horrible, you know, travel mm -hmm. from where they get them. And a lot of these fish won't eat flake food or anything like that. So they're starving the entire yeah. time they're traveling. So I'm happy mm -hmm. to give as much information as I can. Cool. Um, I'm, I'm aware that you've bred rummy nose and cardinals successfully. Mm -hmm. Do you want to, or can you please go through your process from start to finish with them? Maybe start with yeah, start with of one course. of those. Your whole go through your prep, your conditioning, and then and all the way through. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're both very similar. Uh, um, they both come from very similar waters, but at the same time, they're different too. So basically, the, the first thing is you want to get healthy fish. That's the hardest part. And for me, I had to start with wild fish. So I lost, unfortunately. A few fish in the beginning and that's the heartbreaking part that i hate you know really you know as mm. far as i'm concerned i don't want a single fish in my fish if one fish dies in here and i'm upset I, I really like to tighten things up so i know what's happening so um, i do have a protocol so i hit them as soon as they come in they, they come in with so many especially the biggest thing with them is two things there's the external parasites because they're you, you know in these wholesaler to wholesaler they're exposed to so much stuff and they're stressed out so those those two things are combining for bad stuff so i'm going to hit them for the external stuff first um and, and it's malachite green and formaldehyde it's a mixture of those mm -hmm. two and that's common i'm sure you can get that stuff um but i don't hit them with that unless i have to because those chemicals are harsh but I yeah. much prefer to watch them for a few days and I give them lots of water changes. And that's the key to breeding these fish is they need water changes and a lot of water changes. So the Cardinals, when I first got them, the wild group I had, they were getting daily water changes. That's a little, you know, that's a lot. You don't maybe have to do every day, but I would say twice a week if you want to induce them, you want to let them know, hey, the rain is coming, the environment is clean. Yeah, you know, if, if you look at papers down there, the water is a TDS of like zero, you know, it's so clean with all the rain. It's a rainforest. So you have all this rain there. So that one of the foundational keys is these fish. And you'll see them if you keep a lot of them, how they respond to getting a water change. Immediately they'll respond. They're schooling tightly. They're happy. You know, to me, they're saying, hey, thank you. I'm happy now. You know, you cleaned my tank here. So that is really key. So the water changes is key, keeping them as much space as possible. Plants are very important because as you know, plants are gonna remove the nutrients from the water. So that's very important. You should look at all my tanks, floating plants, very important because they remove nitrates. So that's very important. So getting that initial stock is gonna be your key. That's the first step, quarantining them off, making sure you have good stock. You wanna get them young. If you can, you don't want old fish. You want to get young fish. Um, if you can get them from somebody who bred them, you're getting them from them. That's the best way, of course. But a lot of times you have to get wild fish. So quarantine, water changes, that's important. Um, know the species that you have. Don't go on the Internet, unfortunately. I, I've been doing this for so long, and I look on the Internet, and the information is so bad. It's so erroneous. erroneous I'm sorry. You know, I have books that were written years ago. I, I go to uh, find books that were written in Germany that have the English translations, if possible, because, you know, no, no offense to my countrymen here in the United States. We just don't take the hobbyists seriously as they do over there 
and I yes. find them way superior, you know, way superior. The average hobbyist that I meet here, you know, again, no offense to all my countrymen, they're just not at the level, you know, and I care about the fish. If I'm going to get a fish, there's many fish I want to get them unless I know like hatchet fish. I got some hatchet fish and before I got them, I made sure I had fruit flies. I made sure I had a tank that was long enough for them to swim back. And, you know, this is the stuff that I think about. So preparation is important. Get good reference material to know the waters that they come from. Understand that. Very important um, because that's going to mean the difference between success. So researching, you know, what pH do they need to have? What what hardness? What those are, what temperature? That's important too. You, you know, even though it's South America, there's some rivers where the water is the 60s and 70s, you know, low low 70s. So you need to research as much as possible. And then the other thing I like to do is I'm going to put the young stock in a community like type of tank, a planted tank. Floating plants are very important. A lot of people overlook this. You know, we, especially in the United States, you see people keeping these tanks, all these big lice and everything. And these fish are terrifying. They're horrible. Mm -hmm. Everything's going to eat me. So I look at things from the perspective of, of the fish. And I've collected fish in the wild too. So I see how they live and they're trying to survive. It's, it, it's a very violent world where everything's going to eat you if you cross the line just a little bit. So these fish, or a lot of them, the small fish that we keep, you're, you're going to see them in vegetation. So floating plants are very important because the fish have a sense of security. So I always like to keep my little tetras with tanks with a lot of floating plants on top. So matching the water parameters, giving the fish security, that the, the, those are the foundational things that you have to have. Water changes, like I said, very important. Um, most of our fish coming from South America come from rain forests where it's raining constantly. So the nitrates are zero constantly all the time. So if we want to succeed with these fish, we have to do the best we can to match that. Uh, the next step now is feeding them. Now that we got the good water conditions, now that we got a good healthy group, they feel safe, they feel secure. Uh, feeding them, very important. I love live foods. I am a live food guy. I feed Daphnia, Moena. Um, we feed what's called amphipods. They're a small shrimp. Mm -hmm. um, I culture them outside by the thousands. Um, they're nice. really prolific. Yeah, scuds, exactly scuds. Um, and I hatch brine shrimp every day, um, twice a day, in fact. So giving them live foods is very important. Now, what I've learned with the cardinals versus the rummy nose, um, the rummy nose are true insectivores and they little, uh, <coughs> we call it, um, they eat little pieces of plankton, but they're carnivores. Carnivores. The cardinals, on the other hand, if you feed them when you want them to lay eggs, yes, give them a lot of mosquito larvae, bloodworms, you know, as much protein as you can. The cardinals are a little different, though. They need some vegetables in their diet or they will succumb, as I've had happen a few times. They eat too much protein, they get sick, they get bloated, and they die. So I have learned the hard, the hard way with the cardinals to make sure I give them some vegetables. Mm -hmm. every day but can, so when, 
when you say vegetables, uh, I'm assuming that's coming from a flake, a pellet or something like that, or you actually feeding proper vegetables? Um, I well, actually yeah. found they will go after because I have the you know the zucchini and stuff like that. You just throw in there, and the algae wafers they'll actually go after that. But the most convenient and successful way is to give them a flake food. Yes, a vegetable flake food. They'll yeah. take it right away, right away. But they need it. Is what I found. They really do. The rhinos can eat protein every day, all day long, and they're fine. Tardinals will get too big, and they get sick. So conditioning, very, very important. So once you see them get fat and sexing them, as certain people always ask me, how do you sex them? Very easy. I'm going to tell you how to sex them right now, and it's super easy. So you want to sex them looking at them from the top. Okay. The males are slender, just like this. The females are, you'll see a little knot like this right in the center of them. You can look right there, and it's obvious. So that's how you sex them. You want to look at them from the top. And that works for pretty much all of them. Cardinals, neons, rumminos, all of them. Right. The other, the other way is you look at the stomach too, and the male is like it's not it's it's straight line, and the female is curved. But when you give them food all day, that's not reliable. You mm -hmm. know, there's times you give them food and they all look like females. The only way. You can truly tell it if you look at them from the top. Yeah. And okay, so I have to continue because so <laughs> once you get fattened up, then I'm going to separate the sexes. This is very important too. Now, by this point in the community tank, you should start to see them. And this is why the floating plants are important. Most people never see this happen because they have these big giant lights, the fish are scared to death, and nothing's happening. But now if you have these floating plants, they feel secure. Predators aren't going to catch them from the top. Mm -hmm. Now you're going to see them during the day. And the cardinals and the rummingos and most tetras in general, not all, are going to lay their eggs as the sun comes up. So right as the crack of the sun comes up, I, I used to come in here at 5 a.m. And you'd see the rummingos and the cardinals going off as soon as the sun comes up. And they'll go on for three hours, three or four hours. So you should see that happening in the community tank first. Once you see that happening, now you want to separate the sexes. Very important you separate the sexes because if not, they'll keep laying eggs every day. And when you put them to lay eggs, they'll only lay 20 or 30 eggs. It's better to get 100 or 200 at one time because it's the same, it's going to be just as much work to raise 20 of them than raising 200 of them. So you might as well raise a couple hundred. Makes sense. Yeah. So that's important to separate the sexes. Once the sexes are separated, now you want to go ahead and prepare the breeding tank. Um, I actually have one set up down here. Um, and these are cardinals that just laid eggs a few days ago. Um, and those fry have actually hatched. Um, and, and the reason I wanted to just see the tank is because I paint the tanks. Very important. Again, you know, most people don't think about these things, you know, when they keep fish, you know, they're just thinking about themselves and they're not looking at it from the fish's perspective. You, you know, if you have a tank where the fish is, you know, you can see from all sides, well, that's terrifying. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to get a, a big fish can come out of nowhere and just eat me. So that fish is never going to feel secure. So it's very important you paint. I paint all sides of my tanks except for the front of the tank. 
-hmm. And of course, you can adjust things however you, you know, but having planted tanks, having places for the fish to hide is very important, especially for these small fish that we that we uh, keep. Mm -hmm. So when you do the right thing, keeping the floating plants, you'll see them laying eggs in your tank all the time. And that's the time to separate them out. So now that you separate them out, males and females, now it's where you got to do some research too. Some of them you want to breed them as pairs, but the ones like cardinals and rominos, you want to put a group of them in there, a group in there, because um, if not, the fertilization rate will not be as high. And you always want to go more males than females. You know, two to one, if you can, I'll go three or four to one if I can. Because wow. the fertilization rate really goes up higher. It really does. Um, if not, it's just, they, I mean, I've had just tons of eggs and the fertilization rate was really bad. And it wasn't, I didn't have enough males in there was the problem because they get into a frenzy. And if you go on my YouTube channel, you'll see it. They'll just go into a frenzy and the females just start dropping eggs. You know, you know, you'll see two females going. There's three males on this one. There's nothing for some reason. There's no males on her, but she's just dropping and she's just dropping eggs. Yeah. So it just becomes a frenzy. So it's important to have a lot of males. There. So preparing the breeding tank is important now. So it's it's now the rummy knows very important uh, that you keep, especially if you have wild ones. The rummy knows are harder to breed than probably any of them. The wild ones and the reason is the cardinals you can keep them at a ph of 6.5 and then when you're ready to breed them drop it to 4.5 everything works fine no problem the rummy nose you must keep them in the ph of 4.5 so the eggs developing internally and i learned this from the folks in the czech republic because they told me uh they have those and i found that to be true 100 percent so those, some of those fish, you want to make sure that you're raising them. Like some of those rarer, more touchy fish, they're, they're gonna, that's going to be more important. The rummy nose, wild ones are like that. You must raise them in the pH of 4.5 or 5.5 in order for the eggs to develop to hatch. If you do not, they, they won't develop. Right. So that's why the rummy nose have always been so difficult. Mm -hmm. So water is important. So there's different ways. Um, I personally like the botanicals. Um, that's the best way. Um, if you want to get a little bag of botanicals, um, the Canadian sphagnum peat moss, again, not sustainable, but that's the only peat moss that works. Um, the, the stuff they sell in the United States, the pH is not low enough. The Canadian sphagnum peat moss, the pH is like four. So that'll drop your pH, but the, you have, so you have to use the right stuff. Mm -hmm. But the botanicals is the best thing. Of course, you, you put that into a hang-on-back filter. You can put it into a little air-powered box filter, and you prepare the breeding tank. What I do is I'll – I don't use chemicals. I, I, I've i seen people say that, you, you know, you use all these chemicals. I just use salt. I just clean the tank with salt, a very strong salt solution, and then I rinse it, and then I'll put the – water in the tank and then i'll put my botanicals and it usually takes about two weeks you have to test it depending on the water you have and everything it's going to be different for everybody so you have to test it every day 
but the shortcut is to use the food grade phosphoric acid. That's the shortcut. Um, you'll have instant water instantly. Um, for my water here, I use reverse osmosis water. Um, in 20 gallons of water, I'll add between three to four milliliters of 10% food grade phosphoric acid. And that'll drop my pH from about 6.5 to 4.5. Wow. Actually, it goes down about 4.1, but then it'll, it'll come up a little bit. Mm -hmm. So it's just about 4.4. And the pH is really important. Well, well, let me caveat that. The carbonate hardness is the first thing. If you don't start with water that's zero hardness and zero carbonate hardness, you can forget about the other stuff. Don't even worry about it. the pH. You're not going to have the eggs won't even hatch. You can drop the pH, but cardinal tetras, rummy nose, fish like that. If the if the carbon hardness and the and the general hardness is in zero, uh, those eggs won't even hatch. So that's the critical point there. So you have to now with wild fish. This is wild fish. Now different fish come from different waters. We're talking about cardinals and rummy nose. Ember tetras, the water isn't that soft. It's a little, it's got a little bit more minerals, a little bit, not much more, but there's different fish. So make sure that you research the fish that we're talking about. But these two fish we're talking here are extremes. I mean, they come from, you know, very, from rivers that are getting rain, you, you know, a gazillion gallons of rain a day. This water mm -hmm. is, is near distilled water. And then on top of that, there's all the botanicals that are doing a further job of removing things. So, so we're looking at very pure water here. So, so, so these, these fish that we're talking about here in these two instances, we want to make sure that our carbonate hardness and our hardness is zero. Now we can lower the pH. Now the pH can come down to 4.5 quite easily with either botanicals or the food grade phosphoric acid. I like to put the pairs now that you've got the water right. You've separated the sexes. I'm going to go ahead and put the pairs, or I'm sorry, the groups in at night. Um, usually that gives them some time. Uh, fish that have bred before, they'll spawn the next day. Boom. They know what to do. They're like, let's go. <laughs> you know, and the fact that you've kept them away from each other, you know, and you're fattening them up. And they're as soon as they see each other, they're like, okay, this is time. Let's go. And the water changes in there, everything. It's, it's, it's giving them the signals. It's time to lay eggs. So that's why those water changes. But see, most people talk about the water changes. Now, I'm I said the water changes way before that. You, when you start conditioning them is when you start the water changing. Because biologically, their bodies start to change. Okay, it's time to lay eggs. It's time to reproduce. We have a very short window. This has to happen now. So mm -hmm. you start those water changes then. So then when you put the fish to breed, that night, they, they'll probably go the next day, but some fish will take two or three days. I don't like to go more than three days. Um, do not feed them when they're in the breeding tank um, because we want to keep things um, as clean as possible, as clean as possible. Very important. Um, so you put them in, uh, everything goes well. They lay eggs. All right, this is great. Um, with cardinals and rummy nose, they're going to hatch in, well, first of all, the temperature should be anywhere between 78 and 82. 
Um, here in Florida, they were laying eggs in '86 too. I mean, so it's it's flexible. Mm -hmm. um, at that temperatures, they're gonna uh, the fry hatch very quickly. So in 16 to 18 hours, they they hatch. Amazing. I mean, it's just amazing how these fish survive. Um, then cardinals on the third day, they'll absorb their yolk sac and their. I'm sorry, fourth day. I'm sorry, got it backwards. For the cardinals on the fourth day, they're going to absorb their yolk sac and they're ready to eat. The rumminos grow way faster. They're, they are amazing. We'll talk about them here in a second. On the third day, they're ready to eat. They've absorbed their yolk sacs and they're ready to go. And the rumminos grow at just lightning speed. They're amazing. Um, both of them. Now, this is where it gets interesting. I've always read and personally seen that you feed them paramecium right away um they're so tiny but i've heard from the breeders in europe they feed them brine shrimp right away we'll have to talk about that another time on um, the tetra group that we've all talked with me that that's where i learned that from some of these guys um there's a process so we'll talk again that's a whole process i don't even understand so i don't want to get into that but the fact mm -hmm. that it's out there is really cool but the way that i raise them now uh, and this makes your life so much easier, guys. Paramecium is probably the best way to raise them, but this is a culture of hyper-dense vinegar eels. And vinegar eels, I'm sure you've heard of them, but mm -hmm. this here is raised the way you would raise it. Um, this is basically oatmeal mixed with apple cider vinegar. And the Vinegar eels are able to reproduce here, and look how prolific they are. I mean, wow. they're billions there. I mean, you can just see how thick they are there. Billions. So what makes this so effective to raise the fry of tetras is they free swim throughout the tank. And paramecium are still the food of choice, but you can't – It's you got to have a lot of paramecium cultures to feed a spawn of tetras, man. You know, so that's the problem that I've seen in the past is, is you'll just run out of paramecium and they, they're not pro, they're not prolific and your wife will kill you. They stink. You know, <laughs> so, this is clean. This doesn't smell at all. And this will last maybe six weeks time and there's no smell. And again, you take your finger or, you know, a little brush and my God, you, I mean, this will feed thousands of fish mm. thousands of fish so i feed the vinegar eels for about a week um about a week and, and it blows me away because i got into it with the, not into it but we were having an intellectual discussion i'm like there's no way because i've been doing this for 40 you know for since i <laughs> for 30 something 40 almost 40 years yeah there's no way but yeah he showed me um so they they um what they do is they have some seeds and these are professionals up there and they're able to get the eggs you know the brine shrimp they're hatching them they're at 80 degree temperature which i think is like 28 degrees celsius it's very warm the eggs hatch faster and then they use sieves to get the right micron size to separate them out to then feed those newly born rummy nose and cardinals you know, but again, these are professionals and they're doing this at a professional level. Mm -hmm. So I don't think I have the time and equipment to do, to do that, you know. 
but uh, with the vinegar eels, that makes it easy for anyone, for anyone. And then, of course, once you get them on newly hatched brine shrimp, then they grow super fast, really fast. Raising the fry, though, I'm going to talk about real, real quick. That's the key to this here. Um, so you want to get, you want to, uh, if you're starting small, say you have like the cardinals or rummy nose, you could breed them in a 20 gallons of water, which I think that that was like, like 375 liters or, or something like that. 20 um, gallon? Yes. Uh, about 80 liters. 80 liters. Okay. So that, that works out pretty good because You'll get about a hundred, you'll get a hundred or two hundred frying in there. That's manageable. Um, you have a sponge filter in there. The key is feeding. You know, you got to feed enough that that they eat enough, but you don't want to overfeed too. So water changes are important. Uh, as soon as as soon as they lay eggs, I'm gonna lower. I'm gonna lower the tank level in half. Because when the fry hatch, they don't need all that. It's going to stress them out. They have to swim so far, so far. So you want it shallow. So that's why the 20 long is good. It's a long, shallow tank. Yeah. So you, you want to look. So as soon as the eggs hatch, you want to do a water change. Bring the water level down about halfway so it's shallow. Um, on the third or fourth day, depending on which species we're talking about, you want to start them on their first food, that's very important. The, where, where people mostly fail at this here, I mean, you could get your water right, that'll take some time, but as soon as you figure it out, you can get that right. But raising the fry, that is gonna take practice and patience, and you gotta be meticulous here, because if you overfeed, you know, it's problematic to get in there. You know, you gotta, you gotta get in there if you see a lot of food overfed and stuff like that, that could be a problem. Mm -hmm. um, when you start getting them on brine shrimp, this is a common problem too. Um, even when you separate the eggs, you're still getting a lot of eggshells into there. So there's a product. It's very inexpensive. Um, it's called a brine shrimp egg separator. Um, here in the United States, you can get them on Amazon for about $9.99. But I have noticed such a difference when you're raising the fry, especially small fry, like that cleanliness hygiene is going to be critical critical mm -hmm. critical so you want to use um if you have moena oh you have an advantage so if you don't have to use brine shrimp because brine shrimp will only last for a certain amount of time so you have to be very careful you don't overfeed it but if you have stuff like moena now you can put you know you know it doesn't matter how much you put in there you, you know it, it's it's they'll survive and live for you know days if not infinitely mm -hmm. in the tank so raising the fry is the critical part here you gotta do i do water changes um depending on how many fry in there i i would say at least every couple days but every day if you can um but cleanliness is going to be your you know hygiene is going to make the difference between success and failure the professionals, what they do is they make these um, flow-through fry boxes where there's a drip of water going into each one. If there's a foam overflow so they don't get sucked in, that is the very best way to raise the fry, if you could do it like that. And that's what the professionals in, 
Indonesia and the Czech Republic, that's what they do. Mm -hmm. But us folks at home, who's got time to build all that and go through Trump, right? So we have <laughs> don't overfeed is what I'm trying to say. Don't overfeed. And if you do, you better go in with a little tiny pipe pipe that sucking up all that stuff, getting it out of there and doing a water change because the fry will die very quickly. If you mm. don't keep things very clean, they die fast, super fast. That's probably one of the number one causes for people failing when it comes to breeding tetras is the fry. Fry mortality, yes. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, little tricks of the trade, I was just going to share that, is you want to put some snails in there. Um, snails are really important. They're going to eat a lot of the uneaten food. I love snails. They are your best friend. Um, pygmy quarries are my best friend. As soon as I put the little fry on the you can't put them in too early or the pygmy quarries will eat them, even though there's, you know, but once the uh, little tetras are eating brine shrimp, usually about, to be safe, I would wait till they're about 10 days to 14 days old. You could put some pygmies in there and that's going to help keep that tank because they mm -hmm. love brine shrimp. So they'll just go in there and you all brine shrimp up. Mm. But hygiene is, is important. Water changes is important. Are you um, water changing with your um, treated uh, RODI type water or are you a bit more lenient and more of a tap water sort of thing? You know where I'm going with that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I don't mess with water too much. I just use straight RO water. So my RO water comes out about a TDS of about seven or eight. And then my pH is about 6.5 and I don't touch it. I just use that and that's it. Yeah. The only time I mess with the pH and the parameters is when I want to have them lay eggs. So now the rummy nose, like I shared with you, those you got to start them out for if you have wild ones. Now, I found with the F4s I have now, you don't have to do that now. They're fine now. But the wild ones, you you do. So, yeah, the, the Romeo's are probably the tougher of those. What um, was it that attracted you to the Romeo's for breeding? Was it the, the fact that they were a challenge, or is it a love for the fish itself? Man, love for the fish itself. Um, I never bred Rumino's before. I bred Cardinals back when I was like 16 years old, you know. Mm -hmm. I bred all these fish. Never got around to the Rumino's. So I researched a lot about them um, and, and just fascinated. Fascinated mm -hmm. by how they spawn. So on that point, in my research on the Rumino's, the Rumino's lay eggs on the surface. So oh. really cool. So where they're found, there's all these floating plants. Also, enough of there's leaves, these leaves that fall down on the surface and they lay eggs in the surface. So, the breeders in Indonesia, they use those big katapa leaves. Mm, yeah. And they hang them on a bamboo stick. And, and that's how they get them to lay eggs. So, that was kind of yeah. interesting. Yeah. Cool. But I found that they'll just use a mop. And by the way, I'm going to show you what the mop looks like. Um, whoa, I almost fell oh. down. <laughs> 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 um, this is called eyelash yarn. I don't know if you can oh, see yeah, that. we've seen that recently, didn't we, Cam? 
Mm. You've seen that before. That stuff works great. They love that stuff. Mm. They love it. There's um there's a lot of conversation about like light sensitivity with eggs. Have you found this to be the case, or are they not too bad? I believe that up until recently, <laughs> I did. I did. I used to think, you know, you yep, use a red a red light and all this stuff. And I actually watched a guy on YouTube from um, Indonesia, and I was able to translate what he was saying. And he was just had a flashlight and he was doing this and that. And he had runny nose and car. It's nonsense, this stuff about, you know, and I said, well, let me test this out. And sure enough, I've been on all, and I've been, you know, I'm 53 again, been doing this for how long? Long time, since I was eight years old. And I always thought that to be true. And no, it is, I don't think it's true. I, I put lights, I've not seen any difference at all. So, and I would have staunchly opposed that if I had heard it before. So. Um, the other thing that you mentioned before is the age of the fish. What's the kind of optimum age? Are we talking three months old? We're we talking a year old. What, what sort of age? Do you great have? question. That's a great question. I'm going to show you right right now. Um, these cardinals right here were born on nine on September sixth, mm -hmm. and that three month old cardinal. Look at the size of them, right there. They're big. They are already laying eggs. Wow. They're already laying eggs. So I would say if you can, you want you know, usually the wild fish are pretty young. They're usually about four months old. So you want to get fish that are probably less than a year old, optimally six months old or less. So if you're getting wild fish and you see those small ones, get the small ones. They're a better investment. You got a better chance of them surviving. Number one, they're more adaptable. And you want to get them young, so they will adapt to your conditions and all that mm -hmm. stuff. So, you yeah, for the fish. everybody wants to get to the big ones. Those are older fish. You don't want. Cool. So, see, once they start spawning, how regular will they spawn? Ooh, every day. Oh my goodness! Cardinals yeah. and runnels. Once you get them going, the water and the triggers are important. So, those water changes every day is what gets them to go. That's triggering in their brains. Hey. Rainy season's here. It's raining every day. And as long as you're doing those, you have, you have to do them every day. I mean, the, the the thing is this, right? It's the nitrates, right? It's the nitrates. So if you have a lot of fish, then you might have to do them every day. If you have, you know, a bunch of fish in a tank. But if you don't have that many fish and you got floating plants and planted tanks, maybe it's once a week. Maybe it's twice a week. I don't know. You have to make that determination. Mm -hmm. based on how many fish and, and also make this hobby fun for yourself right don't don't try and kill yourself doing this you know it doesn't make any sense right have hmm. have fun enjoy yourself um but when you have a lot of fish in a small you know space especially when you're raising fry they just need a lot of water changes that is key so they'll they'll just be laying and especially when you have them those when you're when you're conditioning them you're giving them so much food so it's important to give them a lot of water changes too so I'm just going to throw this out there to the chat. Uh, if yeah. there's any particular species that you want uh, to ask David on, care, spawning, whatnot, please chuck them in the chat. Otherwise, I'm going to be really selfish and I'm going to talk about <laughs> ask the questions about the fish that I'm trying to pay attention to at the moment. So if there's specific, specific ones you guys are looking for, please uh, feel free to chuck them in the chat and we'll, we'll see how we can go there. So, being that I'd like to be a little bit selfish, 
<laughs> green fire tetras, uh, breath buns. Have you had any time with them and, and been successful with them? They, I bred those years ago. They're gorgeous. I love them so much. Um, Such and I may have to go back to my memories here. I'm talking, this was the 80s. This was the, oh, wow. the mid 80s, probably 85, 84. I had access to a wholesaler down in Davie, Florida. And he was a German guy. Great story. I, I just, you know, I'd sit there and talk to him for hours. He had discus and all these rare rare fish, green fire tetras, one of the ones I got from him. And when I bred them, what I remember about them the most is that they breed, you need fluffy, uh, like the bomba. Mm -hmm. They like to lay their mm -hmm. eggs in very fluffy plants like that. Um, and I used water Sprite. If, if you notice, I use water Sprite in all my tanks. So I had a, a floating layer of water Sprite. And back then I used heat moss. I didn't have all the youtube and advice to learn from other people so and here's something that works just peat moss i use peat moss and they'll lay the eggs in the peat in the peat moss and they won't find them they'll just the eggs will go so that's what i that was the egg screen i used back when i was 15 16 years or years years old uh, i believe their ph was not and i'm not even remember i'm going from memory here so, so forgive me if i don't remember exactly they were not terribly difficult to spawn on um, their pH was, I think, low sixes, like 6.2. It didn't have to be like the cardinal where you have to bring another, you know, 5.5 or something like that. Uh, but the key was they were getting mosquito larvae. I was giving them at the time. Um, I lived in Puerto Rico, which is a tropical uh. island. And I had um, this little like pool. There was a concrete that, and I was able to go up there and collect mosquito larvae every day so giving them mosquito larvae every 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 day after a while they started just going at it and laying eggs what i do remember is that they want to you want to breed them not as a pair but in a group of fish mm -hmm. and i believe that you know most fish lay eggs when they egg the crack of dawn they were more middle of the day yeah midday early afternoon is when they decide to is their trigger time is your trigger so you think that's uh a temperature related then if it's midday do you think um the heat triggers it as opposed to the cooler waters coming in the you know tetras wild tetras man they're so tuned in with the environment so to your to your point mm -hmm. yeah all that's going to be important are uh, the time of the day the temperature the amount of light in the tank um like cardinals wild cardinals They'll never lay eggs if it's, it, you have to darken the tank. That's, oh, I forgot to tell you about that too, guys. Um, when you're breeding the cardinals and the rubbing of most tetras in general, you really need to shade the tank. You don't want this in a, you know, if you see my my breeding tank down there, look how dark. Mm, ah, yeah. Very dark. Very dark down there. So that's very important. They won't lay their eggs with all this light there. So now some of them are not like that um green fires neon tetras don't need it to be no i'm sorry not neon tetras green fires um there was another one that i can't remember the one i was thinking about green uh black phantom tetras they'll lay their eggs in the middle of the of day too they don't want it dark 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 they want a little bit of light but again when, when, when i say a little bit of light, i'm talking indirect light 
Mm. You know, not light on top of it. When, when they're, they always want to lay their eggs at least in indirect light maximum. So that's an important factor to consider too. Uh, the green fire tech is not so important, not, not so sensitive, I, I should say. But the cardinals, the rumminos, the neon tetras, they almost want it black, dark, really dark. Cool. Uh, we've had a question regarding uh, green neons. Uh, if John wants to bring that up from Helen. Um, yes. Where is that slide there? Oh, I've got, I can see right here. Oh, good. Are green neons any different to breed than cardinals or standard neons? Very similar. I have never bred the green neons before, but I've Ooh. talked to many people who have. Um, never bred them before. One of my favorite fish, too. I love them. They're so Beautiful. similar Beautiful. to a cardinal, but, but just, you know, a little bit more slender, a sleeker look. I love them. Never bred them before. My understanding is the temperature and the, no, I'm sorry, the pH and the water conditions, very similar, almost exact. But temperature is different for the green neons. They need a cooler temperature. So they're going to need it about 25 degrees, I think 23 to 25 degrees Celsius versus Cardinals and Rumminos are going to be at 28 degrees Celsius. So those are a little bit, but everything else the same on um, the environment they come from. I've read a lot about them. I just haven't read them yet. Haven't gotten to them yet. Um, but one of my favorite fish too, those are, those are, those are cool. Those, those are cool. I will tell you this, I never read them. And I had them when I was a kid, so they're more difficult, I'm going to say, because I, I never got to breed them when I was mm -hmm. a kid. <laughs> cool. And Red Laser has asked, what about the Red Laser Tetra? Uh, I don't believe this is a Tetra that we have in New Zealand. So have you played with them, dealt with them? Never played with those, but those are their hemogramous. I've read many of those before the species before they're all going to breed the same um and they're not again research them in particular uh but they're mostly going to breed the same they're going to egg pattern um those you're, those get big you're going to need more than a 20 gallon tank most of the grammars i've had in the past you want about a 55 gallon tank if that makes sense so large they need to bit space yeah. they need the space and you need a big large group of them too actually it might not be a 55 you might be able to do a 40 a 40 might be long but what's important with them is they're, they need to, to have the ability to swim back and forth you, you know if they're too tight they're not happy they need that mm. back and forth to do the the courtship to have the proper courtship if uh -huh. that makes sense some tetras you need like the hatchet fish i've read the hatchet fish before and the big thing with them is they need a very long tank because the males are going to do this dance and they need four you know they need a four foot tank minimum to do that dance so the hemogrammas are very similar to that is most of the ones i spawn like that they just need a lot of room and we've got another question from the audience. Rochelle would like to know what tetras are the most aggressive in personality? Mm, uh, Nanostomus morenthali, uh, the, one of the coral red pencil fish. I am surprised. I had a group of those back in March. The males were aggressive. They are really aggressive. Um, most of the tetras I've kept are not very aggressive. 
Um, I've kept most of uh, that's just how the, the kind of fish person I am. I like to keep fish. I don't have to separate and worry about yeah. beating or up. Yeah, I, don't, I don't really like that. It's a pain that I haven't kept really those. Um, I've read Congo Tetris before. I've um, most of the fish I should tell you about. Very easy to breed Congo Tetris. Um, they'll breed in straight reverse osmosis water. Uh, pH is 6.5. Um, they will eat their eggs. You got to be careful with them eating their eggs, but they'll breed in just straight reverse osmosis water. So very easy. Um, their eggs take a week to hatch. So that's the big problem with them is you'll be sitting there for a week going, oh my God, most tetra eggs hatch in 16 or 18 hours. But the reason I mentioned those, those are big fish, but even those big ones aren't, you know, they're not aggressive. The most aggressive ones I found are the some of those little coral red pencil fish, the male group. Are a little, are a little for pound for pound, they're they're you know they're a little bit nasty. <laughs> and we've had another question. Um, yeah, there we go. So if it's been discussed, I just got here. Uh, and what can you tell me about the banded darter tetras? Mm, I've never bred any of those. Those are those are actually on my checklist to get those. Um. Not, the availability on those is not very high. I haven't seen them here in the States for a while. Um, they used to be the importers back in the 80s where I used to go to. They were very common. And what I like about them is they, they're, you know, they hang at the lower third of the tank, which is really, which is really nice. And they have so much personality. But those fish I've never bred before. Um, and I've only kept them. And it was years ago. So I don't know a whole lot about them. I'd, I'd really have to look on the Internet. To get you information, mm -hmm. so I'm not going to tell you something I don't really know about. So those have, they don't have a lot of personal, you know, experience. Um, you've shown us spawning mops, and you have used yeah. like to use floating plants, and you showed us mm -hmm. what it looked like a bit of a, a, a cradle type thing. I'm assuming that was PVC with yeah. mesh around it. Mesh around it, yes, yes. Yeah. What other tools do you do you find basically incredibly valuable for your your spawning? procedures uh reverse osmosis uh that's the key you know if your water isn't in tune for this fish you're trying to have that's the most important tool uh just to, the ph meter very important too um anytime you're messing with chemicals and stuff like that you want to make sure that you're able to monitor things but at the same time i don't want to mess with things um i don't test my water every day i know it's stable I know the pH comes out at 6.5 and I leave things alone. Um, but the key tools for, for me or my, uh, my reverse osmosis, because I change water like crazy. And I, I think that's really the most important thing I, I leave with everyone here. Hygiene is so important. You, you know, don't kill yourself. You know, I keep saying water changes every day, but look at how many fish are in that tank there. That's why. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's the reason why most hobbyists at home, most folks are not going to have that many fishing tanks. So the point is monitor your your nitrates. Make sure that you keep things healthy. Um, most of our fish, really, that's the biggest thing I see. Don't overfeed your fish. If you're not trying to breed your fish, you could probably feed them once a day. Like those cardinals, if I wasn't trying to get them sized up and stuff, I'd only feed them once a day because – you know, and they'll live longer. So hygiene is the most important thing, you know, having 
tools like for for me i have a good siphon that go in there quickly and drain the water out of tanks fast that's and if you can automate that my god that makes it even easier right so to me it's just making your life easier those are the most important things make the maintenance of keeping your fish as easy as possible so if you know that you're a person that's not going to change the water a lot you hate it then plants are your best friend you know keep a lot of plants in your tank don't overstock your tanks and, and that's the secret if, if you just keep it hygiene you know hygiene and the fish are happy the fish are healthy and, and that's the key keep it keep it simple you, you know i see so much technology so many things have changed but at the end of the day a sponge filter and water changes and live plants and that's all you need that's okay. it let nature take its course yes sir that's the key let mm -hmm. nature take its course Yo. yeah uh, we've had a speaking of nature we've had another question from rochelle does weather play a part in spawning with tetras like corridors can rain and different atmospheric pressures induce spawns that is a great question um we've from all the breeders and people i've talked to personally myself too i've never seen that but the water changes that is what that's the trigger so no the atmospheric pressure i don't think that's it but certainly the chemical composition of the water that the water changes the nitrates being being low all that fresh infusion of clean water every day that's the trigger um but like quarries you know, i've got some quarries in here so i'll show you i got some c102s if anybody knows about them um they hide like crazy um they are difficult to breed i find them to be fascinating because like to, to the point of the question is it was disaster there's a lot of things we don't understand it's, you know environmental triggers so with the tetras i have not seen that no with the tetras no quarries yeah i'm going to be probably be needing some intervention the whole intervention to get them to breed you know so we'll see what happens <laughs> <laughs> and we've got a controversial polarizing question coming up which I don't <laughs> Oh no, <laughs> that's a good question. Oh my god, so, yeah. what, what are your thoughts on glow tetras? Um, the, the GMO ones, yeah, man, I'm not a big fan of that stuff. Uh, my good friend Bill Shields worked for 5D Tropicals for years and he actually bred them by the Bilzillions. Um, 5D is the one who's got the patent and been breeding and spreading them all over the world, so you know. Here's my thoughts on it, and, and I don't like it personally. I don't want to keep those fish. It's not for it's not for for me. But if it keeps fish from being picked out of South America, and if it takes the pressure off the wild fish, I know that's a weird answer, right? For because mm. I'm I'm with you. I'm all about conservation. I'm all about being responsible. I I I, I hate the fish industry to some to some degree because I've seen the backside of it and all the fish that die, and and, and people don't talk about that. It's disgusting. It makes my mm -hmm. stomach hurt. I don't want to see that. So because the glowfish are sustainable and bred in tanks, they're more resistant. They're evolved, you know, to be abused, quite honestly. Um, so in a weird sense, I almost have people keep those fish and then keep our rivers and all that, leave those poor fish alone. So, but I don't, I don't like those type of fish, no. Yeah, yeah we're lucky we don't, we don't get any of them down here in New Zealand. They just... They're just not here. They're not allowed to come in. I'm on the same field. I'm, I'm not a fan of them. 
um, but yeah, their own, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, is it some? Is it the kind of fish that people that have kept tropical fish for years would take, or is it the kind of fish that is like a gateway fish? But um, somebody that's never had an aquarium before sees them and thinks they're cool, gets them, and then realizes they're not so cool, and then moves on to yeah. more natural fish. So then I can see a purpose in that side of things mm. coinciding what David said, where it is preventing some fish being you know, pulled in from the wild, but it's the process that went into initially creating them that I don't like. It's like a frankenfish. Yeah. It's a frankenfish, yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't like it because who knows what could happen and what that opens up and all that. And you, you, you know, I'm not a big fan of that. I prefer tank breadfish. I, I don't, but I, it's weird because if it takes the pressure off, you know, going in South America and getting all these cordiscus and angelfish and all these cardinals, and we know half of them are more going to die. And I, I don't like that, you know. So that's mm -hmm. where I, I hope that as a hobby, I'd like to see what's going on in the Czech Republic and Germany, where you know breeders are breeding these fish. It's you know, so there's no. And it's the same thing. I guess we're exploiting fish to some to some degree, either way. But I rather that the rivers and the natural environment be left alone, if possible. Mm -hmm. Cool. And uh, I believe that Zena's tried to redeem themselves. If you want to bring that up, John. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, have, you, yeah. have you ever done anything with Project Piaba? Uh, any conservation industries? And yeah, what are your thoughts on which ones are good to support? Yeah, um, you know, Project PIB, I'm going to be honest with you, they are, you know, I think they're good. They're, they're science there. There is, a, like, to your point, sir, uh, you made a good point early on, Project PIB, it is sustainable. That That, that is, it is science. That that's, that's not, you can't argue, but the point that we're making is, even though it's sustainable, those fish are, in my opinion, still suffering because of the transportation aspect mm -hmm. of it. And, 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 you know, weeks, months of transport and the death there. So, Project Piev, at the end of the day, because I was professional in the industry, they're, you know, it's a lobbyist group kind of almost sort of that's, that's, that they're supported by funds from these big monster corporations like Seagrass Farms and 5D that are here in the United States. And, and they basically want to get good information science to back up what they're trying to do. And that's exploit getting fish out of South, out of South America. So at the end of the day, let's call it what it is. So there's science there. Yes, it is. You can't argue it, but let's see what is their goal. What's their point? Who's paying mm -hmm. their, you know, where's the money coming from? And, yeah. and when you follow the that, money. Yeah, I mean, come on. You know, at the end of the day, yes, there's science. It's very, there's these great scientists have read that have written these papers. And and yes, it, it's sustainable. Correct, because they are annual fish, epistogrammas, tetras. They're annual fish. They're going to die anyway. So yes, there's something to be said about that, but but that's the natural course of things that's going to happen. That's food for the other animals there, versus them coming here and suffering this journey where they're dying in a bag, dying in a, in some exporters, dying in some pets in some pets store. That's the side of the hobby that I mm -hmm. that I don't like. I really don't like the side of the hobby. And at the end of the day, Project Pieva is a corporate funded entity. So that's what I have to say about that. I, I totally on board with you with sustainability. 
here in New Zealand, we're a little bit limited on what, what we can get. We are obviously at the arse end of the world and everything has to be flowing in. Like We, we don't really have a lot of options with that. Yeah. Uh, as far as commercial breeders go, um, so from a wholesale point, I think we've got three importers and one commercial breeder. Wow. They only they only really deal with live bearers, African cichlids, um, bristle nose sort of thing. So like, we're kind of damned if we do, damned if we don't. If we want to keep fish down here, we we have to have them imported from the other side of the world. Like we've got no real real option here. So like, I can yeah. totally understand and get what you're you're saying with that. Cool, it's sustainable, but there are so many issues in transportation from here to here. But but yeah. we don't. We don't have any other options. Like it, it just is what it yeah. is for us down here. It yeah. is what it is. Yeah, I understand that. And like to, to to me, I'd like to see things evolve. Where yeah, you know, and this is where there's so much paperwork and bureaucracy. But in, in a perfect world, if I could make, wave a magic wand, right, there would be breeders. You know, not necessarily professionals, but people who love the hobby. And I, I know that's a pipe a pipe dream, possibly. But that really want to maintain the, the species of fish. So then, you know, people who want to keep them are getting them like in the Czech Republic. There's all these breeders. I went to the Czech Republic and I met this guy in a basement and he was breeding all these tetras in a room this big. And he was doing an ungodly number. I forget the exact number, but it was like five or 10,000 fish a month out of that room. Wow. wow. Unbelievable. And he had a central system. And that's where the keys to success here. So all the tanks were connected. So there was like thousands of gallons of water, even though they were in like, you know, 10 gallons or really in this mm. whole big giant mm -hmm. system. So the synergy of that was very important. Mm. So I, I saw that and I go, wow, you know, that's what I'd love to see here in the United States, you know, everywhere where there's these breeders breeding fish or, or something like that. And, and, and it's not this taking them out of the, you know, the rivers and all this stuff. And, and, and that would be, because obviously there's a demand, there's a commercial demand worldwide. Correct. So hopefully we can our, our, our thinking can, can can change and we could you know because the environments are so fragile these days. Um, I'm I'm you know I was hearing a paper just recently where the temperatures have gone up so much now that in Brazil all the epistogramma agazai the, there's males it's all males. So a scientist oh, wow. wrote this paper alarming paper global warming is having a massive impact where you know now you're going and what's going to happen so he's going to go back next year and see what happens but the temperature rose like five degrees it's significant yeah, in it that area and now there's like 90 percent males being produced because of the temperature change so man you know that there's so much to discuss here right you know yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know that's not the only species. I think um, Otolampricus from Lake Tanganyika or another one, water temperature um, develops either females or males, whether it's up or down. I'm not quite remembering what it is, but there'll be plenty of fish out there that will develop particular particular ways depending on all sorts of things like that. And yeah, I totally understand what you're saying and, we, and what you, where you're going with that. Yeah, yeah. Fish are, fish are amazing, right? There we are. Yeah. yeah. Adaptable. So adaptable. Um, so before we get on today, uh, you sent us a link to your YouTube channel, uh, which is obviously quite quite new and quite fresh. 
Um, I'll get John to put a, <laughs> put a link into the chat for everyone who wants to have a wee look later on. What yeah. what can we kind of expect uh, from that coming up in the future? Because clearly you are an absolute wealth of knowledge. What, Thank you. What, what can we kind of expect if we're going to jump on and subscribe to your your knowledge, basically? Um, next year, I want to do more knowledge-based stuff, just talking about the simple things that happen here every day. Um, as I'm going on the internet, I'm seeing this great need for, you know, information. Um, I, I think that people go on the internet and these websites will water down. And when you're researching, for example, Chile raspberries, there's all these websites with information on them. And the information is so erroneous. It's just like the pH is 7.5. No, they come from black water. You know, they need pH of 5.5, you know, and they come from cooler water on top of that. So. All these stuff where not clear where they come from warmer water on top of that. So there's just a lot of misinformation. So I want to talk about just little things here. Um, try to go back to when I started with fish, the information was very different. Um, people read more. I think now people are going on YouTube and getting their information. And you know, it's not always accurate. So I'd, I'd like to go back to a lot of the techniques have been lost, like peat moss and botanicals. That's all we had back in the day. And remember, I still said I'm lazy, so I use the phosphoric acid that's quicker, but the botanicals and the peat moss is the way to go. Mm. So, and, and then also the brand new pencil fish, the Senepas, the Nanostomus. Um, I got a big, um, I want to get some more of those. Um, I, I, I had some of those, and I didn't succeed in them. I only had like three fry, and they didn't survive. So I, I want us to see with those next year too. So, um, but really, I want to continue to maintain the fish I have. Um, I, I think you know, over the years, I've been a collector of fish, and now I would rather just really improve and maintain the ones that I have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I love that you're using the word success and not luck. I'm a firm believer that mm. you're not lucky with fish. Mm -hmm. You're being successful. You, you've got to give them what they want, and then you'll be successful. It's not that I bought a bunch of fish, they died, three left, they were lucky. No, you've, yeah. something's gone wrong somewhere for that to kind of yes, happen. Sir. Other than, of course, old age and random things that happen. But you know where I'm going. That success is such a better yeah. way of putting keeping fish than than being lucky with them. I agree with that. That's we could talk. We could have a whole show about that. Um, I <laughs> yeah. think too many obvious here in America. And I hate to. Be, pick on my countrymen here, you know, but it's the truth. I, I get irritated by that. Oh, you know, I lost 10. I'm like, man, you know, I'm not okay with that. You know, I, I lost some fish back in, in, in March because the water, they put some chemicals in the water. I wasn't aware of it. It overloaded my carbon system. It was this, you know, I've since made adjustments so that never happens again. I mean, I was like, wow. You know that that really, you know. So I'd like to see people be to your to your to your point, Cam. Be more responsibly. You know, it's not lucky. It's that's research. There's a life that you're taking in your hand, like a dog or a cat. And yeah, yeah you know, there's a lot of fish I'd like to have, but I don't have them because I don't have the space. You know, I don't have the right parameters for them. All those things. So yeah, I, I love that you said. That. <laughs> Listen, before you answer the next question, Cam, I'm going to just have to. I need to uh -huh. go, sadly. Yep. Um, but it's been really, really good talking to you, David. Um, Thank you, guys. Uh, I hope.
you guys enjoy the rest of the show um, and I'll catch up with you later on. And thanks, guys. Have a good weekend. Thank you, guys. Right, so I'm just going to go. So, um, again, for my own selfishness, uh, Lemon Tetris, what's your experience been with them? Because I have, um, I've just separated a, a couple of females and a male. I've just begun my prep to try and get a spawn out of them. Um, those are real here in Florida. They're very, uh, they're tank red. So they're, but I, but I brought them years ago when they weren't tank red. They were wild. Um, they're one of the easier ones to spawn. Um, so just a spawning mop, um, nice, you know, they will eat the eggs. So make sure you have something to protect their eggs, darken the tank on all sides. Um, and and they're pre. It's been years. I mean, I'm talking years, but they're they're one of the easier ones to spawn. You shouldn't have too much problems with them. Um, live foods is the, is the key. Most of the times, I know when they're going to lay eggs before I put them in the breeding tank. So if you've seen them, the males chasing them. If you've seen that kind of you know them being active, as long as you give them the right parameters and a good water change, they'll usually spree right away. Lemon Tetris shouldn't give you too much problems. Cool. Well, that'll be. Uh, I will let you know via message in a few days' time I'd if something happens. Yeah, <laughs> I want to see. I want to see, man. That's awesome. Yeah, it's exciting to see those little those little fry minutes. Really neat. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Rochelle's asked about glass uh, blood fins. What sort of size tank do they need, and a size to show? Glass blood fins is one I've never actually even kept before. Believe it or not, and they're fairly common. Um, so I've, I've I've never kept those before. I don't even know where they come from, to, to, to be honest with you. So there's so many. You know, Tetris is one of the biggest families of fish, as you know. They're um, wow, I mean, just tremendously big. Yeah. And Brexton is brought up. Just back towards the when we're talking about the luck and being successful, he thinks that luck might have a little to do with it, considering where we get fish as consumers. Yeah, yeah, I think there can be an extent to that. Um, I'll be right back. Let me get something. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right, Braxton, and thank you for joining us. Uh, I think you can can be correct on that to a little to a little extent. Uh, equally once you've got them home and, and giving them what they they kind of want, looking after them and their care requirements, that kind of stops that luck and that, you know, good fish husbandry, getting them in, quarantining them, fattening them up, getting them on live food, getting them all, all content again, and, and then it sort of changes that point. I do understand where you're coming from. Like I said earlier in the, in the conversation, our fish get flown in from halfway across the world. Big bags of probably hundreds of fish, and um, if not, you know, several hundreds of fish going on through the very stressful quarantine. So I, I totally understand where you're going from that. Um, so, yeah. Cool. And he's, oh, it's clarifying. That's a great a point bit. right there, too. Let me just, let me go back to that point, because that's a good point. Here in the United States, the pet shops, you can't fault them, but their intestinal worms are one of the most contagious worms out there in pet stores. And the live bearing worms are the worst ones. And the reason why I'm saying that is you really want to make sure you quarantine for at least two weeks. Um, I use um, flubendazole, mm -hmm. and there's a 
water soluble type that they sell here. And I'm sure they sell something over there too, but that's one of the biggest problems I found is to your point, getting fish, you know, being lucky. No, don't be lucky to, to, to your point, Cam, prepare and know what you're doing. So when you get the fish, you want to hit them with flubendazole. Very, it's, there's a product here called Prazi Pro. Mm -hmm. um, it's available on Amazon. So you might be able to get it too. But that's a water-soluble one, and, and what, what's important about it, the life cycle of that intestinal worm is, is really, you know, it's like two weeks you need to knock that out. So you want to continuously treat. I pretty much any fish I bring in my fish room, first of all, they're going to quarantine, but I'm going to hit them for two weeks, especially for those intestinal worms are so contagious. And I found a lot of people get out of the hobby, you know, because of stuff like, because of stuff like that. Mm. So that's a good point, getting your fish and unfortunately, no matter what pet shop you get, they're not going to treat them for two weeks. No wholesaler is. They're just not. So it's up to you to take that responsibility on, unfortunately. And Brexton has just clarified a little bit. I mean, it's like chili roast water come from soft black water. And if we buy them from pet stories, we're on the back book. I, I totally get that. Um, yep. And to that, I don't disagree with you. You're 100% you're correct. And... and yeah, there's only so much. You know, I'm obviously retailers, only so much that we can do as retailers. Um, and, and you're 100% mm -hmm. right on that. So, in saying that, uh, retailers are able to set up brackish systems for brackish fish and saltwater for saltwater fish. So, uh, maybe botanically black water based fish with lower lower pH, softer water could also be an option um, to, to try and make that more, more successful in the long run. Um, that's a good that's a great point and that's unfortunate and, and the thing to do is get them as soon as they get them like if you get them from a pet store say hey when do you order your fish oh on when do the fish come if you can get them before they even unbag them even you know like that's what i i would do i'd be waiting for them if you could because yeah it's like you said you start off on the back foot and but if you get them healthy you know amazingly believe it or not other than breeding though i have seen because the wholesalers down in miami I've seen even cardinals, you know, in, in hard water and everything. If they're handled properly, that's not the most the worst thing. It's not the worst thing. It's it's really how they're handled, mm -hmm. and if they're fed too is important because a lot of times a lot of those importers don't feed them, and, and it makes a difference. You'll see them skinny, yeah. and you know that's when they don't have a chance. When, when they don't eat at all during that journey, that's when they have no chance. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Like. Again, as, as a retailer, I think it's my responsibility from when I get my fish from my wholesalers before I pass them on or even before I put them on to sale is to make sure that they're, they're nice and plump, nice and, and healthy. We we do an in-house quarantine for be a minimum two weeks, normally three weeks. That's awesome. Wow. And wow. For, for the end yeah. consumer to, to try and avoid all of that, that issues that, that can potentially come with it. So, um, yeah, I, I, I see a lot of not the most healthiest fish come in and skinny fish come in and I can open a box and see straight away which ones are going to give me issues and which ones are going to be fine. So I, I yeah, totally feel yeah. that. Well, that's amazing that you did do that. If you were here in the States, I'd buy all my fish from you. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> cool. uh, do you have any other social media besides your YouTube? Zen would like to add you to the Fish Fam Link website. Um, I have a... Um, I sell some fish here because I got so many, but it's just a commercial site where I'm selling fish. It's not informational. Um, I just have so many pairs of rams and 
epistos and you, you know i have to find them homes to be honest with you so it's just for that so i don't have anything really informational i'm working on something though so as soon as i do uh keep going back to my youtube site and i'll definitely update you cool uh what vegetables to tetras like you discussed uh zucchini before from emory whatever yeah. whatever options do you have um you know that's a that's a great question um i have seen some really cool stuff as uh, cucumbers zucchini squash um i have a bunch of auto sinkless that i have to give the, those type of foods to mm -hmm. and it blows me away when, when, when i see the tetras jumping right in there too so that's cool. the kind of stuff that they like the, the softer stuff yeah so what what other fish do you keep obviously we've you've said We've got an insight of epistogrammas, rams, ottos, and pygmy quarries, and the other quarries that you said before. So, quarries. what uh, sounding very South American based? What other fish do you keep in your fish room? Currently, right now, it's not it's not a big fish room, so it's just other uh, rams. I have electric blue ram, I have epistogramma longsloy, which are gorgeous. Um, Borreliae, so not a whole lot. I love those epistos, but. You know, honestly, my true love, if we want to talk about fish too, are killifish. I love killifish. Um, there's so many beautiful types. Diapterons um, are beautiful. Um, Australian rainbow fish, of course, because they're so far away from me, are beautiful. And from New Zealand, some of those rainbow fish are gorgeous. Mm. Um, I think those are those are, those are are neat. But over the years, probably the fish I've spent my most time with are uh, uh, tetras, apistos, discus, and angelfish. Um, right now, I don't keep them because discus and angelfish, you need a lot of uh, bigger tanks and filtration. And here, I'm able to keep more tanks. And when you work a lot and you're, you know, you don't have time to be spending as much time, the smaller fish are easier hmm. to handle. So I've always liked the smaller fish. Are you are you actively breeding all the, the small fish like your pistos and quarries and stuff like that, or are they just just hanging around because you like them, so to speak? I, I have a I have a disease I can't just hang around because because I like them. Um, any fish <laughs> I get, I don't know. I don't, and especially if they go, they've never been bred before, or they're impossible. That's like, yay, okay, let's 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 go, right? You know, like to me, that's challenge accepted. So, um, yeah, I I I love a challenge. Um. Most of the fish here, I have plans. I'm breeding them. Um, the auto sinkless are my big challenge right now. All the other ones, I feel like eventually will happen. But the auto sinkless are very common. And, and those are ones that break my heart because you know they die by the millions. Because I keep them. I'm working hard on a group of 20 I have in a 30 long. And I gotta, they eat so much because they're herbivores and they poop so much. So anybody who recommends, hey, let's get some autos to clean my tank. I'm thinking, what are you thinking? Because they're going to add so much more bioload and waste to your tank. They're going to increase your algae problem because they're adding more waste and bioload to the tank. So, you, you know, it's that, those are the type of things, you know, that, that's a challenging fish, you mm. know, because to keep a, a group of 20 happy, they they got to eat around the clock. They're eating constantly. So I'm having to, you know, work to keep them fed and, and then change their water because they just poop like crazy because they're herbivores and they eat all day. So, uh, Helen would like to know: Do the veggies need to be blanched, or can they just be thrown in raw? Blanched is is, is key. You got to put them in boiling water for about thirty seconds, forty five seconds. It's an art form. Dip them in there for a little bit and take them out. 
don't cook them too much. They're picky. The autos are very picky. That they're very picky. I found them to be one of the more difficult fish. You know, they're common and everybody sees them. You know, I hear I've been keeping fish forever, and I'm going, man, these are. You know, I got to work to keep these fish. Like you said, Kim, you know, we want to do everything to keep them happy and healthy. And yeah, they they require a lot of food. They require a lot of algae. You put them in an algae tank, and they'll clean it out in 24 hours. So. I don't know how people can say, let's put them in a tank to keep the algae that will be gone in 24 hours. And, and then what, you know? So, yeah, but they're really dead. Sorry. That's something that's absolutely forgotten. I think with autosynclus that you need to mm -hmm. feed them. Like you, you have to physically feed them or they will starve yeah. because they don't have enough to eat, basically. They're the fish I worry about the most every day. <laughs> like you said, I have to keep them fed, you know? So other than uh, live foods and the vegetable matter that you're feeding, what are some of your staple pre-prepared foods that you, you like and what do you look for in, in those foods when you're purchasing them? Um, that's a great question. Um, most of, you know, I don't know how things are in, you know, different countries, obviously. Here in the United States, most of the commercial food is garbage, real garbage, the tetra, all that. Yeah, you know, it's watered down stuff. I buy from a place called Ken'sFish.com. Yep. Um, yep. And they produce their own food. I, I, it's the, you can smell it. You know, you, you can get mm -hmm. flake food from the pet store and you open the can, you can hardly smell it. You open this bag of food from Ken's Fish and it's like, wow, the whole room smells. The ingredients are fresh. It's a difference. So it, it's important that you get good food to feed your fish. So important. And the funny thing is that the food's more expensive at the pet store. That's not, and I'm not saying pet store. I'm just saying, you know, that's all that they have is to get the stuff from commercial sources. So, but there are good sources out there. So getting good foods important, quality flake food, quality stuff. Um, here in the States, it's, there's not a lot out there yet. You have to almost go out and find, um, I make a lot of my own food too. If I do use food, I, I make a beef heart mix. I mix it with fish and shrimp. And that binds it really good. And then I'll put some spirulina powder or something like that. And the fish love that. I but if you can get a good thing, it's good. I, I found it really hilarious when you said, like, you open up the Ken's fish food and you can smell it and it wafts through. Um, yeah, yeah. Last night, I, I fed my fish. My wife was in a totally different room. She walked into the lounge and said, Ugh, <laughs> Fish, having a stick, so I've been feeding um, <laughs> tropical, right. tropical soft pellets for, for the fish that I've got in my lounge. And uh, yeah, it, you're right; you can smell a quality food, just just what comes out of it for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Helen would like to know: Have you ever kept whiptails? Uh, whiptail catfish, yes. Um, I, uh, the red lizard cats, the L110A, I love those. It's one of my favorite ones. Um, they're carnivores. Um, I have a friend of mine who breeds them, which I'm hoping to get some from him very soon. So if he's listening, um, I'm going to be coming to your house soon. <laughs> Michael Daugherty, if you're out there, <laughs> I'm coming to your house soon, my friend. Um, but yeah, those are cool. I've never bred them before, though. Catfish and quarries, um, I don't have a lot of experience with those fish. Um, but I have kept those before, and they're very similar to the autosynclus in that they need a lot of vegetables blanched, 
with them too, the wood's important too for mm. their digestive system. Um, wood's very important. And even with the autocats, I find that to be very important. Um, I have wood in there and they're on the wood all the time, just scraping it. And one of the research that we found in a lot of those catfish, it's not just the vegetables they eat, but there's a biofilm called off witches or off witch. It's yes. a German term, a German term. It's basically biological film that grows everywhere. And all those type of catfish, they eat that. That's growing everywhere. And they and they eat that stuff. So so those are I find those fish fascinating because, you know, honestly, everyone's saying tetras are hard to me. Tetras are easy. But the, those catfish, you know, my God, there's just so many variables to 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 consider with them. So I, I find them so, so fascinating. Yeah, they're, they're very cool fish. Um, and I, I totally agree with the word that I can't pronounce. It starts with A. It's, it's the one <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The the more mature your tank is for things like autosynclus, the, the more success you're going to have because they've already yeah. got something to chew on to start with, and um, yeah, very similar to to the smaller catfish and, and stuff like that. Where do you find all of your information other than um, coming directly out of your own experience? Is there some trusted uh, websites or books that you go to on a regular basis? That is is your this has really helped me sort of scenario? Yeah, yeah, um, that's a great, great question. Um, there are a lot of, um, and, I, and if I could send you guys the links, there, there's a few ichthyological sites that I could go to. Um, you could research papers mm. that have been written on, you know, cardinal tetras, rummy, there's just a plethora of stuff out there. So my advice is to avoid the internet's, uh, most of the sites are commercial based. They're trying to sell food and equipment and so forth. And, and, and it's the motivation is to sell products, not to give information. So I find that I, I like to go to scientific websites, um, educational entities that are doing research. There's a lot of them out there. Um, so, so, so look for ichthyology, yes. right? That's the term ichthyology. So look for ichthyological websites that's where i get the part of my information if i could just find out what the river's like if i just know the temperatures the water parameters i got it you know and then if i could figure out what environment they live in it's 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 a river system it's a pond it's a lake if i can figure all that out then i could you know figure out what's happened but then there are some great books that have been written um dots aquarium in germany has written some great material and they're translated into English. So that's probably my primary source of stuff. I read a lot of books translated um oh, the names you could go on eBay and find them. You can go on eBay. It's D-A-T-Z and then look for English translations. And there's a bunch of them. Uh and it's breeding fish like you know cardinals and rum and it's it was written in the 60s and 70s and 80s and these breeders that you know, were meticulous and, and like scientists. So uh, look for stuff like stuff like that. Um, really, Germany is probably our number one source of information, to be honest with you. Um, there's just so much great material on, you know, catfish, Corydoras. England, too, though. Ian Fuller in England, he's Corydoras guy. He's probably the world expert yes. 
on yeah. Corey. So, so yeah. Europe in general, Europe yeah. is where I go for my inf information. I, I love my country, great country and all, but fish science, you, you know, not, not a lot of great information here and a lot of false information here, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. John, John knows again, relatively well, um, We've been trying trying to get him on with us to talk corridors, but at this point uh, we haven't been overly overly lucky with that. But um, I'd love to have him on to speak corridors because, like you said, he I'm sure what he has forgotten is more than so many people know. Um, mm. Yeah, unfortunately, maybe we'll, we'll try and hopefully get that next year. We'll see how we go. I'll I'll show up for that. <laughs> I'll be here <laughs> yeah. for sure. Um, I, I think you're right. The German industry is so much more complex and detailed than probably any other industry in, in the world when it comes to this mm -hmm. like there's so many great resources and great fish that have come out of the um, african cichlids in particular like some yeah. of the african cichlids that come out of germany are just phenomenal um it's just the next level and even the hobbyists are the next level you know like the, the pleco convention that gets held around in germany and stuff like it's just they, they, it's just a bar up above over everybody. It's it's yeah, phenomenal what they they can achieve and they have over there. I, I traveled to Germany and the pet stores there and the wholesalers there. There was a level of professional cleanliness and care for the fish. You know, in Miami and, and South America, there's fish dying everywhere. And you go to Germany and it's like a laboratory, a science laboratory. And you look at a wholesaler, it's a different world. So definitely. Yeah, actually, I think you can probably include a lot of European countries. I've spoken to the people from uh, Tropical Fish Food, and they're over in Poland, and, and they were very much had that same sort of feel to them. And there's, mm -hmm. in that kind of region of the world is just next level awesomeness when it comes to the aquatic industry. Japan, too. Japan, oh, my goodness. When I started in the fish hobby years ago, um, Japan hadn't wasn't getting direct imports from Brazil as much as now it's going directly to Japan and they pay top dollar for, for fish. But back then they were importing them to Miami and then from there going to Japan. That's how much money was in that too, which is crazy. You know, mm. the Japanese pay so much for the fish. So that was a big thing back when we started that, you know, Europe is supplying Japan. They're, they're mm. great. There's a big hobby in Japan too. Yeah, massive. You're, you're right. Cool. So we're, we're coming to the end of our time. Um, I've got about 10 minutes before I've got to open up my shop. All right. Um, so first of all, thank you very much for, for being with us. It's been phenomenal. Uh, but we like to end all of our Fanatics Friday coffee date with what we call the School of Six, which is six very uh, trivial, fun, short answer questions. Uh, so first of all, if you were doing a coin toss, would you do heads or tails? Tails never fails. <laughs> That's the one. That's the one. Uh, paper, scissors, rocks. What's your first call? Rock. <laughs> if you could have a meal with anybody at, from any point in time, whether they're alive or dead, who would that be? Winston Churchill. Cool. Are we alone in the universe? No, definitely not. <laughs> Are you a tea or a coffee drinker? Oh, coffee for sure. I'm an American. We're awful here. <laughs> <laughs> and what is your unicorn fish, whether that be owning, spawning, photography, ring, photographing, 
seeing in the wild? What would just be your one unicorn fish that you you would love to be involved with? Uh, Diapteron abyssinum. Um, they're a really touchy little killifish from um, Central Africa. They come from really cool waters, and I am so fascinated by them because you really need to have very exact conditions to keep them. Their oxygen level for them is important. The amount mm -hmm. of oxygen in the tank has got to be saturated or they won't lay eggs or anything like that. So that, that's one of the fish that I find so fascinating. I don't have them right now because I need to set up a room where it's cool in the house and all this other stuff. So, But that's my unicorn fish for sure. And if you look sure. them up, they're absolutely breathtaking. Really I'll, I'll do that afterwards. Thank you again <laughs> very much. This has been yep. a phenomenal conversation. I have enjoyed every minute. And I have, the people in the chat that have been watching have gotten so much out of this. It's greatly appreciated. Awesome. Thank um, you. Yeah, thank you for giving up your time. It, it's been phenomenal. So if you haven't yet, jump on to David's uh, YouTube channel. Give him a follow. I think it sounds like there's going to be some good things to come. And, um, yeah, thank you very much. Really appreciate Thank you very it. much for having me. Thank you so much. Cool. All right, Tim. Thank you, guys. Have a really good day and enjoy the rest of your day and your weekend. Have a good one. Happy fish keeping. Catch you later. Bye, guys. Thank you.